Revelation chapter number 15. As we are studying through the book of Revelation, we're talking this morning about the preliminaries before the last plagues. The preliminaries before the last plagues. And he says in verse number 1 of Revelation 15, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Have you ever heard somebody use the expression or say the expression something like this, it couldn't get any worse? Well, for those that are still alive on earth, at the beginning of this last part of the tribulation, things can get worse and they do get worse for them. The great God of love and grace and patience has finally reached his limit. And the Bible says, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now, we have to remember in this point in Revelation, we are headed towards the battle of Armageddon, and then the battle of Gog and Magog, then the great white throne judgment, and then finally the lake of fire, all steps in the judgment of God that poured out. But just before the awful storm of God's final judgment, there is a calm that comes before the storm. So I want us to look at that this morning. First of all, notice with me a period of waiting. In the first four verses, there is a period of waiting. God is never in a hurry. He's always right on time. He ne he's never ahead of schedule. He's never behind schedule. In fact, when Jesus was born, the Bible says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. God always does things right on time. You remember when he raised Lazarus from the dead? Mary and Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Well, the Lord wasn't late getting there. He was right on time. And he's not late coming back to take his believers to heaven. He's right on time. He always does things right on time. And he's not in any hurry. He's going to pour out his wrath on this earth. And men have rejected him and mocked him and made fun of him, rebuked him. He's not overly anxious to bring his wrath. In fact, I believe that God's always patient when it comes to bringing his wrath. You remember when God brought the flood? You know, some of you are old enough to remember that, but most of us, we take it by the word of God. But when the flood came, the Lord sent Methuselah. And Methuselah's name meant when he's gone, judgment will come. And Methuselah was the oldest man that ever lived, 969 years. God waited. He was patient before he sent the flood and brought his judgment on the earth. And so God's not in a hurry to proceed. He never is. Things always proceed according to God's timetable, not according to man's timetable. And so here is a, a calm, a majestic poise, you might say, that takes place. And as that takes place, he invites us to, first of all, look at the scene. In verses 1 and 2, there's an interesting scene. He says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over the, his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. So here is a look at a scene that's taking place as this judgment comes. He says to us in verse 1, I saw another sign. The other sign here relates back to the two signs 
but were revealed by John in chapter 12. In chapter 12, he talked about the woman that represented the nation of Israel. And then he talked about the great red dragon, which represents Satan, the devil. And here, this third sign is described by John in verse number 1 as great and marvelous. That indicates that this sign is the most significant of all the signs revealed up to this point. This is the sign that is revealing for them the final act of God's judgment upon the earth. Now, God has inflicted judgment upon this earth many times throughout history. We mentioned the, the, the flood that took place, and God brought a, a universal flood. That was God's judgment. He said the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually, and God brought the, the flood. There was the judgment at the Tower of Babel. You remember when man said they were going to build a tower up to heaven, up to God, and what did God do? He confounded their languages. He brought judgment there. He brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was a wicked city. It was a, it was a homosexual city. I know we're in the middle of Pride Month. I don't know about you, but that doesn't give me much pride. The rainbow is not a symbol of pride for man's wickedness. It's a symbol of the righteousness of God. And promised that he would not bring rain upon the earth and destroy the earth by, by a flood, the whole earth. And so it's not politically correct, but Sodom and Gomorrah was a place of wickedness. It was a place of homosexuality. And God brought judgment. He literally sent down fire and burned up the cities and destroyed them because of their wickedness. God brought judgment. He brought judgment on Jerusalem in 70 A.D. when he destroyed the, the city and the temple there. His judgment came on Israel for almost 2,000 years and allowed them to bring to come back and form as a, as a nation again in 1948. Here in Revelation 15, this will be God's final judgment. It's the result of his wrath being filled up. In other words, God's gone as far as he can. He said all the way back in the very first book of the Bible, he said, my spirit will not always strive with man. There comes a point when God says that's enough. That's as far as man can go. And God brought judgment, and he's going to do that again in Revelation. Then notice what it says in verse 2. I saw, as it were, a sea of glass. What is he talking about, a sea of glass? It's probably the same sea that is mentioned back in Revelation chapter 4. If you want to go back there for just a moment, look at verse number 6. Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 6. It says, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. In the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before, the, before and behind. A sea of glass. That's kind of an interesting statement that's given there. Remember that heaven, in many ways, was pictured here on earth by the tabernacle that was built in the Old Testament and then by the temple. And in the tabernacle, when you went into it, there was a place called a laver. It was a, it was a, a bowl where when the priest would come in, Moses and Aaron made that and had water in it, and when they would come in, before they could go into the Holy of Holies, which was a part of the tabernacle where God dwelt, before they would go in there, they had to come to the laver and wash in that water. It was a symbol of cleansing, of purifying. And so here they are in that place washing and cleansing. But this isn't the case here. He says, I saw as it were 
a sea of glass. Now, why is it changed from water to glass? I'll tell you why. Because when you get to heaven, you don't need to be washed anymore from your sins because you've already been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the laver is no longer water, it's a sea of glass. And then he speaks of fire. He says, I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire. These victorious saints here in this chapter have been called to pass through the very terrible, maybe the worst furnace of trial known to man. They've been going through the tribulation period. They've had to deal with the Antichrist. In fact, he tells us a little bit later on in the chapter that, that they had to deal with uh, the various things of the Antichrist, his name and his number and, and uh, all the things that were tied into it. We'll look at that in just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 gives us an interesting application to that to us today. He says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You see, when we get saved, and I talked about this a little bit in our adult Sunday school class this morning, but when we get saved, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be great and grand and glorious. We don't preach a prosperity religion. We believe that there are many blessings that we have because of being Christians and many blessings we have in Christ Jesus. But Paul said, everyone that lives godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We will all go through some suffering and some trials and some troubles along the way. Someone said, a faith that is not tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And God will test our faith and he will take us through various trials and struggles in our life to strengthen us, to purify us. I had a preacher call me just yesterday and he said, he said to me, he said, preacher, he said, my people are really struggling. He said, we have all this tremendous inflation and prices of everything are going up and, and the gas prices are going sky high. Who would have thought we'd be paying $5 a gallon for gas? And he said, some of his people asked him, said, what are we going to do about tithing? We can't pay our bills, and how are we going to tithe? And he asked me, he said, what should I tell them? I said, well, tell them what Elijah told them. You remember Elijah was sent down to the brook at Cherith, and God sent the ravens to provide food for him, and he had water there, but the brook dried up. And then he went to the widow of Zarephath, and, and when he got to Zarephath, this widow, she had one son, and she had just enough meal to make a cake for her and her son, and she said, we were going to eat it and die. And Elijah, the prophet of God, said, make me a cake first. Amen. And this preacher said, you mean I'm supposed to tell them they're supposed to feed me first? I said, no, 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 that's not what he's saying. <laughs> What Elijah was saying is you put God first and then you see what God's going to do. And I said to this preacher that called me, I said, tell your people this is not a time to moan and complain. It's a time to be excited. Let's see what God wants to do. Let's see how God will provide. Let's see what God... And God took that widow and she made the cake for Elijah and she made the cake instead of for her and her son and gave it to him first. And you know the story of what happened. The, the little bit of meal that she had in the barrel and the little bit of oil in the cruise, the Bible says, never ran dry. And they had a famine for three years and it never ran dry. 
I don't think God filled that barrel all the way full and says, here's enough for three years. I don't think he filled the cruise of oil full and said, here's enough for three years. I think every time she went to the barrel, she took the last bit out of it. And when she went back again, there was a little bit more. And a little bit more. What was God doing? God was trying her faith. And because she honored the man of God and put God first, God took care of her. Did you ever think Elijah needed the widow because he didn't have anything to eat? But the widow needed Elijah because she wouldn't have anything to eat either. And God took care of both of them. They had to go through some trials. You will go through some trials and struggles in your life. And God says the trying of our faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. You stop and think for a moment. Gold's pretty precious, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to have a few pounds of it laying around somewhere right now? God says the trying of your faith. I'd like to have just a few ounces. It'd be all right, wouldn't it? (laughs) The trying of your faith is much more precious than gold. He says, though your faith be tried by fire, it'll be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now these in Revelation chapter 15, they've gotten victory over the beast. They've gotten victory over his image that was made and given life. They've gotten victory over the mark. You remember we talked about the mark of the beast in the forehead or on the the wrist. You had to have it in order to be able to buy and sell. They've gotten victory over the number of his name. They couldn't even buy and sell. They were in bad shape. These are not saints of God that were raptured before the tribulation. These are the saints of God who have been victorious during the tribulation. They're going through the trials and through the difficulties. But the tribulation saints are victorious over this beast and over the false prophet and all that's involved in it. Most Bible commentaries and commentators suggest that these people are martyred by the beast during the tribulation time because of their faith for the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, I don't have a persecution complex, all right? I'm not looking to be martyred. I just as soon live. I heard a fellow one time, he said, you know, the Bible says that if you hate somebody, it's the same as committing murder. Well, I'll be honest with you, I'd rather you hate me than murder me, okay? (laughs) Well, these these were martyred. They gave their lives. They had a whole lot greater trials than what we've had. I don't think any, I know none of us sitting here today have had to give our life or we wouldn't be sitting here today, would we? How could these folks standing on this sea of glass in the presence of God be victorious if they were killed during the tribulation period? Let me give you a couple of verses. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55 and 56 and 57. It says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The Antichrist, who martyrs these people, is not overcoming them. You see... He is simply sending them into the presence of their Lord and guaranteeing them that they're going to receive a martyr's crown in heaven. So what he thought he was doing that was hurting them actually 
was taking them out of all the trials and troubles here and putting them in the presence of Almighty God himself. What a tremendous thing. You know, sometimes the things that we fear are the very things that God wants to use to bless us. We don't have to live in fear. God, Paul said, God has not given us a spirit of fear. I heard a preacher one time say, you can't scare me with heaven. And these people, their lives were taken, but they went into the presence of the Lord to be with their God. What a privilege. And so you see the scene. Secondly, I want you to listen to the song. Listen to the song that they sang. And it's amazing in Scripture how many times in tribulation and trials people sang. We even have it in our, in our history in America. Out of the slavery and all of years gone by, they have some of the old spirituals that that those folks sang in those days. And some of those are great songs. They're still sung today. The children of Israel, out of, their, out of their bondage in Egypt, they sang a song. And the song, listen to the song in verses 3 and 4. It's a twofold song. It's the song of Moses, and it's the song of the Lamb. In verse 3 it says, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Here they are, being martyred, and they're singing, and they're saying, God, you're almighty, and, and your works are great, and you are true. You're the King of all saints. You see, the song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and, and the Egyptians chased after them and they're up against the Red Sea and God told Moses, lift up your rod over the Red Sea and it parted and, and God blew upon it and it actually uses the word congealed. The waters were congealed. You know what that means, congealed? You ever make jello? You pour the water in and the jello in there and maybe some sugar goes in with it. And then you let it sit and put it in the fridge, and what's it do? It congeals. It gets thickened, doesn't it? Can you imagine them walking across the Red Sea? I can just see some of those Israelites walking over there, and there's that congealed water. And fishing, I can see them just kind of poking that and trying to poke that fish in there, you know. And God parted, and they went across on, red, on dry ground. It wasn't muddy. Our little boy in school one time, he said, he, he was, they were talking about the miracle, the parting of the Red Sea, and his teacher wasn't a believer, and she said, that's not true. That, was just, that water was just ankle deep. It wasn't, it wasn't deep at all. And the little boy jumped up and said, hallelujah. And she said, what do you mean? He said, the whole Egyptian army drowned in ankle deep water, he said. Praise God for the miracle. God parted the Red Sea, and they went across. The song of the Lamb is sung at the Crystal Sea. The song of Moses was sung of triumph over Egypt. The song of the Lamb is a song of triumph over Babylon. The song of Moses told how God brought the people out. The song of the Lamb tells how God brings his people in. The song of Moses was the first song of Scripture. The song of the Lamb is the last song of Scripture. The song of Moses told of the execution of the enemy, the expectation of the saints, and the exaltation of the Lord. And the Song of the Lamb deals with the same three themes. This song is given in two parts. First of all, notice what the ransom will sing. What the ransomed will sing. Look with me at verse number 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, listen to what they sing, 
Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. First of all, they sang how great thou art. How great thou art. Our God is a great God, amen? And we ought to sing about his greatness. There ought to be a song in our heart, and we ought to sing about it. Something inside of us that comes out to talk about the greatness of God. They said, thy works, Lord God Almighty, are great. We have a great and marvelous God. And then they not only sang how great thou art, they sang how good thou art. In verse 3, he goes on and says, Just and true are thy ways, thou king of the saints. Just and true. You see, there's no complaining here. They're not complaining about the severe trials and suffering that they are going through. There's no dissenting voice in heaven as the saints reaffirm the song that they're singing. That song is that Jesus is worthy. No matter what they were going through, he's worthy to execute judgment on those who reject him, to execute judgment upon the evil in this world and, he perse- and those that have persecuted his children. We've got a great God. We've got a good God. And then they're also saying not only about his greatness and his goodness, but they also sang about his worthiness. They sang, how glorious art thou. How glorious art thou. In verse number 4, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? What a great God we have. Revelation 5 and verse 12 says, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power. Revelation 16 verse 6 says, For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. You see, Jesus is worthy, but now God said they've killed the saints and the prophets. They're worthy of blood. God's judgments are always true and just. He is worthy to judge, and they are worthy to be judged. And could I make that personal? We are worthy to be judged as well. Aren't you glad God in His mercy does not give us what we deserve? Because all of us have sinned and failed and broken His laws and missed the mark, and we all are worthy of death and hell if we got what we deserve. And he is worthy of our praise and our worship because he sent his son who shed his blood to pay for our sins. And by faith and trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we are made worthy. We're made accepted in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. How glorious thou art. Who shall fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? Proverbs and Psalms both say the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord. Everybody should fear God because He is God. A curse comes upon those that do not fear God, the Bible says. And a blessing comes upon those that do fear God. In the Old Testament, Joseph feared God. He said in Genesis 42 and verse 18, And Joseph said unto them the third day, This do and live, for I fear God. The rulers of the Hebrews were to fear God. In Exodus 18, verse 21, it says, Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men such as fear God. Israel was to fear God as a nation. In Deuteronomy 6, and verse 24, it says, And the Lord commanded to fear the Lord our God. The kings of the nations were to fear God. Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 and 19 said, And it shall be, when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book, out of that which is before the priests, the Levites, 
And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes, and do them. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a president that would read the Bible? Amen? And that he would fear the Lord. He said, you do this that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. And then everybody should fear. Every one of us. Psalm 66 verse 16 says, Come and hear all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. Blessings are promised to those who fear God. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 12, Though a sinner do evil an hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God and fear before him. You want it to be well with you? Have a proper fear of God. Hey, the Bible says married couples should fear God too. In Ephesians 5.21 it says, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. The fear of God. Obedient Christians are to fear God. 1 Peter 2.17 says, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God. It is the will of God for everybody to fear Him. Ecclesiastes 12.13 says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. This is Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he sums it all up. He says, here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep His commandments. And so you see what the ransom will sing. But notice why the remnant will sing. Why will the remnant sing? Again, look at verse number 4. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? They were to fear because of the majestic virtue of God. A virtuous God. Thou only art holy. Aren't you glad we have a holy God? He's holy and He's just. In fact, the Bible says that He is so holy He can't even look upon sin. That's why when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God the Father had to turn His back on His own Son because Jesus became my sin and your sin. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? I'll tell you why He forsook Him, because Jesus became my sin and He became your sin. He's a holy God. They sang because of his majestic virtue. They also sang because of the magnificent victory of God. The magnificent victory. Verse 4 goes on to say, For all nations shall come and worship before thee. Praise the Lord, one day all the nations of the world are going to bow before God. May he hasten the day when that takes place. And they sang because of the manifold vengeance of God. For verse 4 says, For thy judgments are made manifest. They're going to see the judgments of God poured out upon this world. So we see a period of waiting in this chapter, and then also we see the place of worship. The place of worship. In verse number 5, he says, And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. It's always a good thing when the, when the church is open. Amen? Amen? The temple is open here in heaven. We're now taken into the Holy of Holies in heaven, and we're given a description of a divine splendor, seldom surpassed anywhere in Scripture. Even God's wrath shows His glory. In verse number 5, again, he says, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. Now that phrase indicates two things. First of all, the tribulation martyrs of saints are going in. 
The temple's open. These people are martyred for, martyred for Christ are going in. But there's a second thing that that reveals. The door is open, and that is that the judgment is about to come out. Those who have been killed for their faith in Christ are coming in, but God's judgment's going to come out. The temple of God, the tabernacle of God, the testimony of God were seen by John, and it was opened up to him. That happens several times in the book of Revelation in preparation for the saved to go in and or for God's judgment to come out. Three things are associated with this holy of holies as they come to the temple. First of all, a description is given of the messengers of wrath. The messengers of wrath. Again, look at verse 5. After that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony of heaven was opened, and the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in white and pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. These messengers come from the inner sanctuary of the temple. What does that represent? It represents the very presence of God. They're coming from the very presence of Almighty God. They do not act with impatience. They do not act with a spirit of independence, but in strict obedience to the will of God. They're doing exactly what God wanted them to do. They come from the presence of God, which is a place of absolute holiness, into and to execute judgment upon this world, which is a place of absolute wickedness. Oh, what a contrast. Absolute holiness, absolute wickedness. First of all, they possess divine righteousness. Or verse number 6 says, The seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen. They're arrayed in pure and white. White always speaks of purity. What they're about to do is terrible, but it's absolutely pure and right. You see, God always does things justly and equitably. He always does things fairly and right. And as these come to bring that judgment, they're, they're not stained in any way. There's no spot of sin that mingles their acts that they are doing. They are carrying out the divine righteousness of God. This is God. what God says is to take place. And then secondly, they, they possess divine restraints. They have some restraints upon them. He goes on in verse 6 and he says, They have the seven plagues, they're clothed in pure and white, and they have on their, their breasts girded with golden girdles. Now what does that mean? It simply means there's no hot passions that are coming out of them that are causing them to bring this judgment. They are simply fulfilling the will of God. They are calm and collective as they're doing what God tells them to do kind of reminds me of the surgeon who goes to do surgery. He plunges the knife into the flesh of the human being, but he doesn't do it with passion. There's not some false pity on his patient that holds him back because he knows what must be done in order to cure or to heal the patient. Surgery at times is needful. At times it is urgent. It has to take place. Sometimes it's drastic, sometimes it's painful, sometimes it seems unkind, but the end result is to bring healing and to take care of the problem. And as these come with the wrath of God, they're not coming with their own wrath and their own passions. They're coming to carry out what God has told them to do. 
And then there's a description given of the mediators of this wrath, the ones that are carrying this out. What about these angels? Verse 7, And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. The mediators or the carries are out of this wrath as four living creatures, one of whom acts and speaks for all of them. These living creatures are probably the cherubim that have been associated with Scripture all the way through the Bible, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. With God's creative and redemptive rights all over this earth. Go back with me for a moment to Romans chapter 8. And we're almost finished, but go to Romans chapter 8 for just a moment with me. And look at verse 19. Gospel of John, and then you have Acts, and then Romans. Look at chapter 8 and verse 19. Romans chapter 8 and verse 19. Notice what God says. For the earnest expectation of the creature, that's man, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made... Subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole world, the whole creation, groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. In other words, this whole world groans. There's a groaning that takes place. Why? Because when Adam and Eve sinned, God put a curse on man. He put a curse on the ground. He put a curse on the serpent. This whole earth, there's a groaning that's going on. Creation's redemption is related to man's redemption. And God sent His Son to die on the cross to pay the price for our redemption. And there's coming a day when God's going to redeem this whole earth. And the curse on this earth is going to be lifted. I don't know how many of you are gardeners or like to garden. I do a little bit. I had to garden so much when I was a kid, I, didn't, I, I wanted to get away from it for a while. And I haven't done much in recent years, but won't it be wonderful someday to have a garden with no weeds in it? A flower bed, ladies, with no weeds. You don't have to pull the weeds anymore. The curse on this earth, they're gone. That'll be a wonderful time that takes place in heaven. And then notice the description is given of the manifestation of the wrath. How is this wrath manifested? Verse 8. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. No man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. The awesome Shekinah fire, Shekinah glory of God resided in the Holy of Holies in the temple of Israel. Once a year, the high priest was permitted to go into that Holy of Holies. He went in with a, with a bowl of bread in his hands to offer for the sins of the people. But since Jesus died on Calvary, the way into that Holy of Holies is opened up to us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We no longer have to have a priest who makes a sacrifice and brings that sacrifice for his sins and for our sins. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who is the perfect, spotless Son of God who died on the cross and shed his blood to pay for our sins. And he opened a way so that we can come into the very presence of God himself anytime we want to. 
The book of Hebrews says, Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You don't have to come and say, Preacher, pray for me. You can do that and I'll pray for you. But you don't have to say, Preacher, would you pray for me? You can pray for you. Amen? I don't need a priest. I don't need a rabbi. I don't have to have a preacher. I have a high priest, which is Jesus Christ, and I go through him. Paul said to Timothy, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The only one I come to God through is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is worthy. No one else is worthy. Only he. And so here, as they come in, the temple is filled with the smoke from the glory of God. But here's the interesting thing. The blood of Jesus Christ blazed away into the Holy of Holies, but now in this verse, for a brief period, that royal robe is barred again. God's wrath is poured out on the Son of Man, uh, by the Son of Man, on man's, it was poured out on the cross at Calvary, and that opened the way, but now the way is closed again. The world crucified the Lamb. And the world has now, they've crowned their rebellion with the worship of the, of the beast in the book of Revelation, the Antichrist, and the world is judged to its fullest. So the bright glory burst into the temple, filling it with the smoke and standing guard at the door, and now the temple which once the door was open, we read early in the chapter in verse 5, after this I looked and behold the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. Now in verse number 8, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from the power, and no man was able to enter into the temple. Now the temple's closed. It's closed. The time to be redeemed, the time for these tribulation folks to be redeemed has run out. And it's a midnight hour. It's like the midnight hour in Egypt when the, when the Lord said, when I pass through, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And every home of the Egyptians that didn't have the blood on the, on the doorpost and on the lintel, the firstborn son was killed that night. When midnight struck, it was too late to put the blood on. And the door was closed for redemption. Now the good news is this. The door's still open for you and me. Amen? We're not here yet. Now we still have God's mercy. Trust Him today. Worship Him today. Live for Him today. While there's still time. Then, it'll be too late. I'm so glad we still live in the day when the door's still open. And He still invites us to come in. He still invites us to be a part of His family. And when we do that, we get to go to be with Him for all of eternity. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says the Lord's coming back and He's going to rapture us and take us home with Him. And He says, they, that we will forever be with Him. That's the key to heaven. We get to be with Him. And then he says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Here's an interesting thought before we close in prayer. One day we get to be forever with Him. But in Hebrews he tells us, when we trust Christ as our Savior, He comes to live with us. And he says, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. Someday I'll get to be with him, but until then, he's with me. 
And if you're a child of God, He's with you. And one day we'll get to go be with Him. One reason, because of the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, that opened the door for us to heaven. Father, thank You for the Word of God. Thank You that we know the judgment is coming. But we're so glad it's not too late yet. I pray if there's one person here that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they'll settle it today. And may those of us who know you, may we live for you. May we be more like you because of our time with you today. And Lord, many of us have loved ones that don't know you. Would you help us to do our best? to tell them, to reach them while the door's still open before it's too late. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand together with me as we sing our song of invitation? All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. As we sing this morning, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, it's not too late. You can do it today. He could come back tonight. It could be too late before this day's over. You could be in a car accident, God forbid, and your life be over. It'd be too late. Settle it today. If you're a Christian, you're not living for Him like you ought to, maybe you ought to come and just say, Lord, I want to get my life straightened out. I want to live for You and serve You. We invite you to come.